0: back to another episode of the lunatics radio hour podcast i'm abby branker sitting here with alan kudan hello today we have an episode for you that has grown to be much bigger than expected
1: perhaps you could say it blossomed
0: (laughs) very good so today we are talking about the history of killer plants
1: this has been a long time coming we've talked about this one for a very long time
0: Yes, and apologies to all of the people who receive our upcoming themes like for writing prompts for writers to submit stories for the Lunatics Library because this one has just been on that email for months and months. But it's finally here. It's finally happening.
1: And then we ended up with the most stories that we ever did. Yes, Which, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead. That's the library episode. No,
0: no, tease it out because I'm so excited about the stories that have been submitted for this theme.
1: Yeah, the next episode is going to be very lush.
0: There you go. You're good at plant puns
1: is that a plant pun i'm not sure i mean there's like a lush forest but also like lush is a makeup brand
0: it's not makeup brand it's It's, not it's like a soap brand yeah soap i mean maybe they have makeup i don't know i don't know yeah so anyway killer plants is obviously a pretty broad term which we realized (laughs) once we got into the research a little bit
1: yeah it's like our not to be confused with its uh companion episode killer (laughs) non-plants
0: well it's it encompasses right like mythological killer plants, literary killer plants, but then also in real life, like poisonous plants or instances where plants have been used to murder people. So it's quite sprawling.
1: You mean like Socrates in the hemlock?
0: I do. We are going to talk about that today. Really? Why? Because it's a killer plant.
1: Sure. I Yeah, I guess we're just talking The whole about...
0: section on poison. Wow. <laughs> okay, there. sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's, again, it's... This one, as you said before, so eloquently. This episode has blossomed.
1: I think, I mean, we'll we'll define it as we go. But when I think of uh, killer plants in the context of this podcast, yep. it would probably be a plant with an intent.
0: Yes. And I think that's one prong of the fork. The other prong. Come
1: on. It's one branch of the tree.
0: <laughs> one branch of the tree. No, the no.
1: You're, I'm sorry. You had it right the first time. One prong of the fork.
0: <laughs> the other branch is plants who are not necessarily have an intention, but humans do, and they've harnessed that.
1: I see. So it's naturally dangerous plants right? that have been weaponized.
0: Exactly. I figured, you know, we're probably not going to come back and do... Another poisonous plant episode, but never say never, so let's just cover it all here.
1: You would love to do like a 20-part series on poison.
0: (laughs) Hmm. That's an interesting idea. That makes no sense for us. Okay. Today's sources.
1: Wikipedia.
0: Wikipedia, yes. IMDb, yes. In addition to that. The internet. A Britannica.com article, seven of the world's deadliest plants. A ThoughtCo.com article, six plants that have been used for murder by Anne-Marie Helmestein, Ph.D., a Medium article by Genevieve Carleton called Meet the Woman Who Poisoned Makeup to Help Over 600 Women Murder Their Husbands, a book called Sea and Land by James W. Buell, a Fandom.com article on the Madagascar tree, an article from GardenCollage.com by Joyce Newman, Agatha Christie Loved Poisonous Plants, an Atlantic article by Amanda Song, Why Pop Culture Links Women and Killer Plants, A Live Science article, Facts About Venus Flytraps, and a National Geographic Kids article, Eight Awesome Carnivorous Plants, by Laura Gortzell.
1: I would also like to cite my sources. Please do. Swamp Thing, The New 52 Omnibus, The Swamp Thing Alan Moore Run, The Swamp Thing Movie, and The Swamp Thing TV Show.
0: Great, and we watched quite a few films which we will talk through as relevant, so those are our sources as well. There are a few different ways you can take the theme killer plants. So we're going to touch on both killer plants that exist, but also the history of killer plants as a theme in horror and science fiction and mythology. Poisonous plants have been used to murder people for literally thousands of years, and they've also, of course, caused accidental deaths or other medical issues. It's no wonder killer plants are a fairly prolific theme in pop culture, especially within the the genres that we gravitate to, right? Science fiction and horror. And there's quite a few films and books and things that we're going to get to today that fall within this theme.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Not only Swamp Thing, even though Alan did a lot of research into that.
1: Specifically Swamp Thing.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, we have carnivorous plants, right? Think Little Shop of Horrors. That's a great example. And so we're going to do some, you know, just some basics around that because in a lot of pop culture references about quote unquote killer plants, there is this kind of tendency to rely on like Venus flytrap-esque plants.
1: Yeah. Hang on. I gave you oh, a boy. Venus flytrap plant. What happened? I don't <laughs> it just like disappeared. You really not know? What happened? What happened? It was quite a bit happened.
0: So, you gave it to me, and then you went away on a film shoot, and it immediately died. So, then I spent it just died. Yeah. I, I, they're very hard to care for. You need to have like filtered water and this whole thing. So, then I spent the rest of the time you were on the trip trying to replace it, which I did. And you didn't realize that it was a different plant. You came back, and you were like, oh, and then it died again. So, then I thought, I am not the one to raise these plants and I should just give up but they need like very specific soil they need filtered water like and I'm you know I'm not that kind of plant person I need like an easy plant situation so that's the history of what happened there but I will say our friend Michael Croza has a huge collection of carnivorous plants and he's been sending me some fun facts about them so
1: I did not know this about Michael
0: if anyone has a question about day-to-day care I would point you towards Michael
1: I think I have to point you towards, Michael.
0: (laughs) Well, I thankfully don't have any currently. So I want to start today by talking about something that was totally new to me.
1: Swamp thing. No.
0: The legends of man-eating plants. So like legends and mythology that exist. And I very easily discovered this by Googling if a carnivorous plant had ever killed a human. Okay. And this is what I got. There's quite a few different versions I found of quote-unquote man-eating plants carnivorous plants big enough to kill a human from around the world i also want to caveat that some of these are like cultural legends and others are literally like hoaxes that have become other things you know kind of like written about in more recent history so just to kind of put that out there
1: yeah take it all with a grain of salt
0: as with everything we do here There's a book called Sea and Land by James W. Buell, which was published in 1887. The subtitle is An Interesting History of the Wonderful and Curious Things of Nature Existing Before and After the Deluge. In this book, Buell describes a plant native to Africa and Central America that sounds like ya te veo, or translated from Spanish, I see you. Buell describes this plant as having poisonous spines. Quoting from Buell, quote, Dr. Antonio Jose Marquez, a distinguished gentleman of the city of Baranguia in the United States of Colombia, in describing this wonderful plant to the author, affirms that when excited, it violently agitates its long tentacle-like stems, the edges of which, rasping onto each other, produce a hissing noise which resembles the Spanish expression ya te the literal translation of which is, I see you. The plant, therefore, is known in South America by the name Yateveo. He further asserts that so poisonous are the stems, that if the flesh of any animal be punctured by the sharp barbs, a rapidly eating ulcer immediately forms, for which there is no antidote, and death speedily ensues.
1: Hmm. I wonder if that would be poisonous or venomous.
0: What's the difference again?
1: So poisonous is if you eat it, you get hurt. Venomous is like more like a snake where it can like sting you and inject something into you. You don't have to eat it. It's not your it's So not like your poison
0: ivy is venomous, but hemlock is poisonous. Is that what you're
1: saying? I don't know if you can have venomous plants. That's a bigger question because, you know, like plants don't actively attack normally.
0: Well, we'll just go with poisonous for now then.
1: Mm. It's It's an interesting conundrum.
0: There's also a famous photo or illustration in this book that goes with that description that I just read. And it looks like, just to describe it, I'll post it, but it looks like a tree made out of tentacles, like holding a man captive in the air with these like tentacle branches wrapped around each of his limbs. And obviously he's horrified, but it's this very like distinct drawing.
1: That's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. The other thing I want to mention about this legend specifically is that, spoiler alert, One of the stories next week just happened to be written around this theme, this legend. So very excited to when I got that submission, I was like, yep, absolutely.
1: That's cool. So it's a giant tentacle tree that grabs people.
0: It looks like, you know, like those famous scenes like in Lord of the Rings, for example, (laughs) when the giant octopus out of that lake next to the entrance to the caves, you know, is holding all of the hobbits in the air. The drawing of it looks very tent, like hundreds of, you know, 20, 30 tentacles, just like that kind of thing, like holding people up.
1: You keep saying tentacles, but I think you mean prehensile vines.
0: I didn't realize I was talking to a botanist today. You're not. What's, what does prehensile vines mean?
1: You know, you know vines? Yeah. You know prehensile? No. So a monkey has a prehensile tail. It can grab things. Oh, got it. A horse has a non-prehensile tail, right? You can swish it.
0: So yeah, I'm just using tentacle because to me that's like the thing visually that I'm most familiar with.
1: Uh, sure. Yes,
0: you're, what you're saying sounds like it's perfectly describing this as well.
1: Thing is, prehensile vines are 100% exist in the plant kingdom. The difference is just how fast things happen.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I would have thought that was like totally a. Uh, Science fiction.
1: Now might be a great time to crack open the Swamp Thing New 52 omnibus. And wow. Let we me... made
0: it about five minutes into this before you jumped and into Swamp
1: Thing. I will read you a passage.
0: <laughs> so that is a work of science fiction, though, to be fair.
1: This? Uh, Swamp de- yes. Debatable. Okay. Okay. So without getting too deep into the Swamp Thing lore, just know that this scene takes place between a very human uh alec holland okay who is the scientist that goes on to become swamp thing that, that's a very loaded statement but i'm just gonna softball that in for now okay it's both before and after but right now he's he's very he's very human and does not have swamp thing powers and he's talking Copy that and he's talking to superman okay 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 i'm I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit because we don't really need the.
0: this is a comic book right yes yeah, so, so you it's... just
1: imagine the pictures
0: okay okay here we go
1: the plant world is the most misunderstood area of biology. Everyone thinks of vegetative life as calm and gentle, peaceful. But the truth is the opposite. Do me a favor and look over there, Superman. You see that plant? The sorrel? As we speak, it's choking that black grey bush to death. And there, that bittersweet vine is strangling the poplar tree sapling, the poplar's child, right next to it. The plant world is the most violent region of all of biology, It's just that the violence happens so slowly. We don't see it. I couldn't even wrap my mind around the interpretation. But when I joined the green, I finally saw it. The plant world is angry and cruel and violent.
0: I have two thoughts. Hmm. The first is you need one of those like really slow cameras. Or you know what I mean? Like a time lapse over like the course of 10 years to sort of see that in real time.
1: Oh, yeah. Like the plants episode of Planet Earth.
0: Oh, the other thing is like, I mean, there's so much we could have gone into at this episode that we didn't, but you know how they they did all those experiments about plants feeling feelings and being able to communicate with each other like across miles and things like that. Go on. Uh, I'm not going to totally butcher this, but there was one experiment that they did where they would take a plant, like take two plants that had, I forget if they had like sprouted one from the other or they had just been planted in the same you know, area for a long time and they would split them up into different rooms and they would like cut off one of the plant's leaves, say, and then in the other room in this test facility, the other plant would like one of their leaves would drop off like things like this is, again, a butchering memory, but something like that, that like was like plants can communicate with each other or plants are like talking and speaking to each other in a way or they're like able to communicate pain or, you know, something like that, which then makes you think okay well then can they feel pain and are we just like so cruel to be planting and cutting them up all the time
1: so i mean that's that's kind of the the whole mythos of swamp thing in a nutshell how there's the uh the collective unconscious of all plant life and that's known as the green and the green yes okay and for you know millions billions of years you know because plant life happened before uh animal life on this planet at least yep so for billions of years plants were the only uh life form on the planet outside of like i guess bacteria i mean i don't even know uh
0: yeah i would imagine there had to have been bacteria uh
1: yes but they right because single-celled organisms whatever you know don't fall under plant or animal right yeah. Um but uh once animals finally developed there was all this vegetative life that was completely defenseless and these things just started eating plants left and right. Yeah. And the the swamp thing mythos they needed a way to defend themselves. So they basically the, the collective plant unconscious pulled all their resources to make an avatar, yeah. an avatar of nature. Okay. That could uh Im- defend them against uh the 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 animals or in this case not the green but the red
0: do you mean like a hero
1: sure yeah an avatar being the um, embodiment uh, of their power so he has all the abilities of plant life and as we've already discussed is that's quite extensive
0: oh okay so this was this is swamp thing that's what you're saying
1: i mean sw- that's how i learned about it we, we it may or may not be true
0: what do you mean that's how you learned about it
1: I learned about this mythos of the avatar of nature through Swamp Thing.
0: Oh, well, it's fiction.
1: Yeah, I, I, debatable.
0: Yeah. You you think that there could be an avatar of nature and that it's Bigfoot? Are you tying it into our last series?
1: Uh, speaking of Bigfoot, we, we do need to do a small redaction.
0: Oh, why? It,
1: there was a bit of an oversight that uh, one of our listeners brought, at least to my attention. Okay. There's a pretty established Bigfoot conspiracy uh, that we just completely glanced over. There is a strong cult following that believes that Michael Phelps is a, is a hairless No, Bigfoot. okay.
0: You're talking about Dan Roberts now. He's also reached out to me about this. We're not... No, there's not a strong cult following. There's one person.
1: And that is why he does so well in uh, all these athletic competitions.
0: So now that that's been said out loud, yeah, we can move on. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. So the real the real takeaway from all of this uh, is, and, and, and this is just why I, I, I keep circling back to Swamp Thing because I just thought it was so interesting. Right. Right in the passage, the whole idea that plants are just as brutal and violent. Yeah as any sentient animal but just on a, a on a, such a slow elongated scale that you can't w- witness it in real time. I just thought that was just so interesting. You know, uh we, I think I've 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 brought this up before on I didn't, don't even remember what episode. <laughs> but the whole idea of the fig strangler tree. Does this sound familiar? Vaguely. Okay. So this is a I mean, I'm going to tell you again. So <laughs> this is when my brother lived in Costa Rica. Uh-huh. And uh, he was in uh, Monteverde. And this is a cloud forest that is very famous for the largest fig strangler trees on the planet. And so these aren't even trees, really. It's a vine that wraps around a fig tree, wraps all the way up to the top. to It breaches the canopy. Okay. And, you know, puts out its own leaves and everything. But the, the vines just keep growing and growing and growing until basically the tree looks like a mummy but just like wrapped in vines cool. and eventually the 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 tree the the vines grow bark and everything but what it does is it completely chokes out the fig tree underneath
0: is it like invasive is it problematic
1: no i mean i'd say it's a i mean it sounds it's like a it's a parasite yeah technically i mean a, a plant parasite if you will but eventually it kills the tree underneath like that that it's strangling but the vines remain right so eventually
0: it's like the outline of the dead tree
1: well it decomposes after hundreds of years
0: the tree yeah the, yeah. the tree that it strangles dies and yeah.
1: decomposes and then you get this like whale skeleton that you can go inside that's it's, it's a hollow tree that it looks like a ladder almost i say whale skeleton because of the ribs and everything yeah um that you can you can climb these you can climb them from the inside because they're so big
0: that's fascinating. Sounds really pretty. It's
1: so pretty. I mean, they go like hundreds of feet tall. Right. And you you can climb up them to get like a, a beautiful view of the rainforest. Cool. But I mean, think about that. Like trees can't move. Just imagine like something slowly over years encircling your limbs and there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it outside of hopefully you can just keep outgrowing it. You grow taller than it grows up you. You know, something like that. It's horrifying. Yeah, but you can't. Because, you know, this strangling vine is like, this is what it does. This is a specialty. You're fucked.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. I never heard of that before.
1: Except on previous episodes of this podcast. I
0: don't know. I feel like I would have remembered.
1: I've showed you pictures.
0: (laughs) Okay, so another legend of man-eating trees, right back to the mythology, Mm -hmm. is the legend of the Madagascar tree. What's that? On April 26th, 1874, Edmund Spencer's hoax article... Was published in the New York World. The article was a letter from German explorer Karl Letch. The article was so popular it was published twice that week by the New York World and picked up by several other papers. Here is a quote describing the Madagascar tree from the original article: quote, "The slender, delicate palpy, with the fury of starved serpents, quivered a moment over her head, then." as if instinct with demonic intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms. Then, while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly, to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan, the tendrils, one after another, like great green serpents, with brutal energy and infernal rapidity, rose, retracted themselves, and wrapped her in fold after fold, ever tightening with cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey, end quote. That's nuts. Pretty rock and roll, right?
1: So every time I, th- you know, it, it sounds so much like science fiction to see a plant act like, um, what's the Harry Potter tree?
0: Devil's snare? N- the uh, womping sure. oh, Willow? Yeah,
1: I was thinking of the Whomping Willow, but yeah. devil's snare is a better.
0: Well, devil's snare is a real thing that we're going to talk about later.
1: D- does it act like it does in Harry Potter? No. Okay. Every time I, th- it sounds so much like science fiction to see a plant move that fast. And I think this also comes down to just like plant cellular biology, right? Tell us. So think of like a plant's muscle, right? Like plants can move. They lean towards the sun. They have flowers that open and close.
0: We have red prayer plants that every day, mm-hmm. like their leaves move almost 180 degrees back yeah, and forth between night and day.
1: Plant, It's, it's effectively the plant's muscles, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it for a crude analogy, <laughs> the cellulose, is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, that's like the stalks are made out of, isn't very flexible overall. So that's the same reason why, uh, you know, you bend a plant too much and it just breaks, yeah. right? As opposed to um, like a flesh, which is just so bendy, you know? However, if you look, but that still means things can still move slowly. Like you look at the time lapse of uh, like plants growing or just like vines are just so fascinating. The the way they like climb trees. Have or
0: houses you, in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, sorry. Like the way that vines climb, well, anything. Watching these like planetary things are just so fascinating because like the vine basically just like spins like a freaking helicopter, but very, very slowly. And it's just reaching, just trying to find any purchase. Yeah. And as soon as it finds a thing, it just like grabs on for dear life, makes like a mount and then keeps growing and it, it, it basically it drops an anchor and then just keeps going on. But we think about what like a plant that can move quickly. Uh, I'm thinking of like the Venus flytrap. And you think of it's the plant's mouth, right? But that's only partially true. It's actually it's flower. Their muscles are almost like one-time use things where after it's triggered, it, it can do one thing and then needs a long time to recharge before it can do a thing again.
0: So circling back to the Madagascar tree, right, the, the work of science fiction, the fact that it was fiction, this was almost like a War of the Worlds type situation, because it came out in newspapers, and it, it looked like a letter from this German explorer talking about this tree that he encountered in Madagascar. Okay. The fact that this was science fiction, like, you know, a la War of the Worlds didn't come out for 14 years. Oh wow! Yeah. So people, it like went wild that week when it was first published. All these other papers picked it up, reported it as fact.
1: bunch of idiots.
0: And it wasn't until 14 years later that people were like, "Oh, that was that was just you know a science fiction piece, mm. a hoax, if you will."
1: Uh, t- typical hoax.
0: Yeah. So I have one more legend of a man-eating plant. To... Is it? Is
1: this the mythology section? Yes. Okay. This is the end of the mythology section.
0: We're at the, the very end here. Okay. So there's a plant called the Vampire Vine. In October of 1891, an article came out in a magazine called Review of Reviews, which was talking about an article that came out in Lucifer magazine. Lucifer magazine, which I looked up, <laughs> was like this woman-led publication that I want to get into more at some point because it was really interesting.
1: Th- this was the original name before the rebrand of Vanity Fair.
0: <laughs> so the article in question mentions a plant from Nicaragua called Devil's Snare.
1: The Harry Potter plant.
0: The Harry Potter plant. It was described as having the ability to drain human blood if a human were to come too close. Quoting from the article, quote, Mr. Dunstan, naturalist, who has recently returned from Central America, where he spent nearly two years in the study of the flora and the fauna of the country, relates the findings of a singular growth in one of the swamps, which surround the Great Lakes of Nicaragua. He was engaged in hunting for botanical and entomological specimens when he heard his dog cry out, as if in agony, from a distance. Running to the spot whence the animal's cries came, Mr. Dunstan found himself enveloped in a perfect network of what seemed to be a fine rope-like tissue of roots and fibers.
1: So like a spider web, but of plants?
0: Yes, exactly. Mr. Dunstan manifested the greatest horror of the vine, which they call the Devil's Snare, and were full of stories of its death-dealing power. He was able to discover very little about the nature of the plant, owing to the difficulty of handling it, for its grasp can only be torn away with the loss of skin and even of flesh. But as near as Mr. Dunstan could ascertain, its power of suction is contained in a number of infinitesimal mouths, or little suckers, which ordinarily closed, open for the reception of food. If the substance is animal, the blood is drawn off, and the carcass or refuse then dropped, end quote.
1: That's pretty badass. Yes. Wait, 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 wait. You said devil snare is a real thing.
0: So I think it is, but I think they use the term and kind of invented this because this story is also a work of fiction or a hoax or whatever you want to classify it. So I think they took the term devil snare, which is a real herb or flower or some, a real plant in the nightshade family, and use that terminology here. But what I was saying before is it's the way that it's used in Harry Potter is certainly not real.
1: Right. Yeah. You. Well, how do you beat it in Harry Potter? Light. Light, not fire. Mm, what am I thinking? I think it's light. It's like, Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, it's it's even not that crazy to imagine like a plant that has like a whole bunch of barbs or almost like vampire bat fangs with like the little little, little tubes. Well, I'm sorry. I I learned this fairly recently. Uh, I always thought that vampires had little tubes in their fangs. First off, vampires aren't real.
0: I never thought that. I thought they were teeth and then they drink the blood.
1: Yeah, that never clicked with me. I thought they had like... You thought
0: t- they sucked through their teeth like straws? I thought they had little
1: straw teeth, yeah. That's
0: quite a weird thing to think. It is, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And like when I took a step back, I'm like, yeah, of course, that doesn't make any sense.
0: Doesn't make any sense, no.
1: Anyways, so like plants have a whole nutrient delivery system, right? And that all goes off capillary action. So, you know, just a small tube, as soon as the small tube is introduced to uh, any kind of uh, liquid that has a certain amount of, what? what is it, Surf demand. high school biology or physics is really coming back. Uh, it's the same thing. It's so, yeah, capillary action is, what is it done? By, like, the polarization of water, which causes surface tension, something like that. It's just the same thing that why stuff goes through, uh, like, through a straw, you know? Or how things get pumped through our capillaries. It's just they get naturally drawn through the tubes. So just imagine a whole bunch of these little syringes being thrown into somebody that are empty. As soon as they they get stuck in, uh, if there's a place for that liquid to go, it would get drawn out.
0: Is this just some imaginary plant that you're painting the picture of here?
1: This, this is like the physics... The very plausible physics behind the devil's snare story that you just.
0: The vampire vine, yeah. yeah,
1: Which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it is cool. The other thing I want to say with these three examples is that there's a theme with all of them (laughs) around like Western explorers going into South American or African, Central American places and finding these like terrifying things and then reporting back. Which, again, has that sort of like, you know, explorer sort of thing to it. So I just want to call that out, too. You know, that like, I think with Yate Veo, like that exists as its own folklore. But the other two have this sort of invasive. uh, And and even with the framing of that, it's just something I want to say, you know.
1: You know, not too long ago, I was watching uh, Jungle Cruise starring The Rock. Yeah. Sorry, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Sure. And so that's all about. Explorers coming to the new world and just getting hit with like a big curse, and they, they, the every time they get too far from the for away from a river, the jungle comes alive. Prehensile vines shoot out of the jungle, wrap wrap the people, and drag them back to the river. They they just can't escape. They're cursed forever. They were able to trick somebody by like shoving them into a pit, which was too far from the river. And so like all the plants uh, all the plant vines shot out of the wall and tried to drag them into the wall but it can't so they just got stuck there forever. Which is kind of badass.
0: <laughs> there you go.
1: So but does that con- that concludes our mythology section? Yes. Okay, I have one mythological tale involving death by plants.
0: Is it from the swamp thing? No. What is it from?
1: Norse mythology. Okay. Does that count?
0: Yep, approved. Proceed.
1: Okay. So, okay. this is from the Death of Balder. Sorry, spoilers. Balder dies. Okay, so Balder's mom Frigg g- gets a prophecy that her son is gonna die, and like terrible news. Yeah, this it's pretty bad. But like, literally, everybody loves Balder. Uh, he's the literally the the light of the world. Everyone everyone loves him. He brings smiles and ra- and and radiance to the planet. That's like kind of his thing. She goes on a crusade and talks to every single living thing on the planet saying, hey, I'll cut a deal with you. Uh, Like, you like my son, right? They're like, yeah. It's like, would you kill him? And they're like, no. It's like, okay, deal. It's like, you get to enjoy my son in the world. In return, you just have to not kill him. Okay. So it talks to every single rock, animal, plant, everything. However, what she doesn't speak to is mistletoe because mistletoe is just such an unassuming little plant. What could it possibly do?
0: That's always a mistake.
1: I know. It's a, a cl- classic hubris, if you ask me. After this is done, uh, the gods put it to the test. And uh, everyone takes turns trying to kill Balder with various things, whether, you know, the clubs made of wood just, like, bounce off because the wood refuses to hurt him. They throw rocks at him, and the rocks uh, just curb away. Like, nothing can touch Balder. So then Loki being, you know, Loki god of mischief... Who just wants to see the whole world burn goes up to Baldur's blind brother, Hod, and says, Hey, I know you're pretty sad because you can't hurt, you can't like take part in the festivities. You wanna like do something pretty funny? He's like, Yeah. So he says, He just gives him a little dart made out of mistletoe and says, Tell you what, if you just throw this at your brother, it's just gonna bounce right off and everyone's gonna cheer and say, Hey, even, even your blind brother is having fun. What a day. And so obviously Hod throws it. It kills Balder. And simply just because mistletoe was overlooked as a unassuming plant. uh, And that was what ended up bringing down like this god that brought light into the world.
0: So what's the lesson from that?
1: Overlook nothing and never underestimate uh, the god of mischief.
0: That story feels very familiar to me.
1: I mean, it's pretty famous.
0: Loki's such a bad, a bad boy.
1: He, yeah, he's just like wanted nothing but to cause chaos and did a great job of it and also like yeah fuck you mistletoe why you gotta be like that this <laughs> is it was like mistletoe is like spiteful for being ignored
0: i get that so we can't talk about killer plants this overarching theme all right see you next time without talking about carnivorous plants right that's a huge piece in this puzzle sure And the Venus flytrap is perhaps the most commonly known, at least in the U.S.
1: I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say the piranha plant from Mario is even more ubiquitous.
0: The Venus flytrap has what's called trigger or sensitive hairs. So trigger hairs or sensitive hairs. And when a bug comes into contact with these hairs, the trap gets prepared to shut. But it only closes if there's more movement detected within 20 seconds, which to me is like so fascinating because it do they have brains? I don't understand these calculations and how they're happening.
1: I think it's three hairs.
0: So there's three movements, not hairs. One Mm. is prepared. The second is clamped. And then the third movement is to introduce the digestive juices that start to break down the insect, like stomach acid would.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
0: Mm -hmm. And then after several days, the parts of the bug that couldn't be ingested fall away. And while this is just interesting that while the trap is closed, it's actually airtight, which prevents outside bacteria from getting involved. Hmm. Quoting from Wikipedia here, quote, the requirement of redundant triggering in this mechanism served serves as a safeguard against wasting energy by trapping objects with no nutritional value. And the plant will only begin digestion after five more stimuli. To ensure it has caught a live bug worthy of consumption. End quote.
1: Yeah, because didn't we figure out that like the pl- the little mouth can only close a couple times before the whole thing just falls off?
0: Probably if you're like fucking around with it too much, it just gets oh, but weary.
1: Ju- yeah, but just also like by design. Even if it dissolves a bug, oh, I don't know. Uh, it only has like so many charges in it, if you will. Because again, it- it's just the flower. It's not the mouth of the thing. It's yeah. it's we're just putting.
0: Well, it's a trap not yeah, a mouth
1: right but it looks like a mouth it looks like it's teeth but with his little hairs yeah but i guess that's just pareidolia um as we're like putting features onto a featureless thing
0: well it's not featureless but it's not human features sorry that yeah, yeah. pareidolia
1: putting associating human features onto an inhuman thing yeah but yeah then, then the thing just falls off and it's it's toast
0: toast it's like bumblebee like after it stings you it dies
1: well Oh, yeah. Uh, can, wait, bumblebees don't have... Do they have stingers? Or whatever. Honey whatever kind of Yeah, whatever yeah. kind of
0: bee. Despite the ability to buy Venus fly traps on Amazon, in the wild, they're actually on an endangered species list. Hmm. They're native to the U.S. specifically to North and South Carolina, which I didn't realize.
1: It's a very small area.
0: <laughs> in the mid-1700s, Arthur Dobbs, who was a colonial governor of North Carolina, wrote about the Venus fly trap in a letter, quote, We have a kind of catchfly sensitive, and catchfly sensitive is all capital, which closes upon anything that touches it. It grows in latitude 34, but not in 35. I will try to save the seed here, end quote. Flytraps actually lure their victims with their bright red color and a sweet nectar that they emit into the air, kind of like as a sexy perfume. But Venus flytraps aren't the only carnivorous plants, not even close,
1: I only know of the pitcher plant.
0: Ah, how what a well-timed transition! So the pitcher plants, for example, eat frogs, and I think Michael also has one of these. The only thing they don't digest from the animal of like for a frog, for example, is the skin from the frog's feet. What? Yeah,
1: interesting. What is it about the skin that I don't know? They're makes just it not indigestible? Too
0: tough? I don't know.
1: But it goes to the bones.
0: It goes for the frog, everything except for the skin from the frog's feet.
1: Interesting. Maybe there's a market for the leftover skin. Uh,
0: Okay, so what do you know about the pitcher
1: (laughs) plant? So it works just like, um, well, a a pitcher of water. It's got kind of a narrow top, narrow opening at the top. It kind of bells out a little bit and just has a,
0: a- Like a vase.
1: Yes, and and then it has a fluid at the base, which I think it might actually just be water, um, from uh, from rain. I don't know. It's also the digestive juices, but it has like like a pitcher. It has like a little top that can close. Animals, including up to like you know bugs, but also frogs, apparently, and who knows how big? Maybe they maybe bears <laughs> um, will fall into the pitcher trying to get to the nectar. Uh, So yeah, I guess it's not water, it's nectar. And then the top of the thing will close and the sides of it are super smooth. So they have a lot of trouble uh, climbing out and they drown. Yep. And then they get digested.
0: Yep. That's definitely a theme we'll see with some of these carnivorous plants.
1: Mm. What else you got?
0: So there's also an evil plant called the cobra lily, which has see-through windows in the leaves, so what, how it works is that bugs fly. I like, think they're flying out of the plant but because, because there's like these see-through leaves. But they're actually flying deeper and deeper and deeper inside of the plant.
1: I'm Googling cobra lily just to t- take a...
0: Take a gander.
1: Interesting. So these look like little snakes. I guess it's just you get kind of lost in the thing and it's kind of bendy.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like that... To me, it reminds me, you know, like when you're a kid and you were on a pool tube and you would spin and spin and spin and then like with your eyes closed and then drop under the water and it's supposed to feel like you're drowning and you like don't know which way is up.
1: <laughs> no, I've never done that.
0: Oh <laughs> Well, that sounds like, really dangerous. Uh, I mean, it only like your Disney lasts for like two seconds. Don't do it at home, kids, without someone around. But it, what it feels like is I feel like this thing of like you're, you don't know which way is up or down because the bug doesn't know which way is up or down or which way is out because it's all kind of like see-through like you don't realize you're trapped
1: sure oh yeah it's like a bug trying to get out of the the sliding right it's like a bug trying to get out of a window right where you have it cracked open it comes into the tiny crack it doesn't
0: know yeah you
1: can open it wide and the bug is so freaking stupid it just keeps hitting (laughs) the glass again and again
0: there's also the butterwort plant. What does that do? It uses a sticky substance on the outside to trap bugs. Like one of those, um, you know, like fly tape or whatever that people hang? Yeah. It's like that. Like as soon as the, the bug lands on it, it's stuck to it. Fly paper. Fly paper, yes. And the leaves don't close, but once the bugs are stuck, the digestive juices start to flow. Very similar in mechanics, but very different visually is the Australian sundew. What does that do? same thing but it just looks totally different. It's like a, another flypaper type. Um but there are so so many plants that fall into this category and the thing I love about carnivorous plants in addition to just how cool they are and like how all these mechanics are so different is how visually stunning they really are and they kind of by design, right? Because that's what's attracting like the frogs or the insects like their prey. Is their bright, beautiful leaves and colors and flowers, and then also like the scents that they emit. Like they're very precise predators, really. You know, they're setting these like very elaborate traps.
1: It reminds me of Jumanji, mm. and I'm, I'm I'm digging digging deep here to try to remember this quote. Oh, oh um, one thing that Robin Williams says is that if it's really the, the if it's really beautiful, it's probably trying to kill you.
0: I'd say the same thing about people. Uh, sure,
1: yeah, maybe the he says whatever you do, watch out for like the really big yellow ones, and then like you finally see the big yellow flower bloom out of the closet, and that's the one that has like the giant teeth and like the 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 vine is shooting out of its mouth and dragging the boy into it. Yeah, and it wasn't until he comes over with his rapier and slices the vine that the boy's saved. When's the last time you watched Jumanji?
0: We we, we watched it this summer.
1: How come you didn't reth- How come you didn't bring it up?
0: Well, because I don't. We watched it while we were getting ready for a wedding, so I was like half watching it. Do you remember?
1: Yeah. I, oh, I watched that scene. That was that scene. That's why <laughs> it's so in my mind.
0: Well, here's my question for you: Like, how do plants evolve in a way? Because, like, where they eat meat or they eat insects. Like, how did that originally happen?
1: I mean, now we're just talking the theory of evolution, which is.
0: I don't know. Are we, or is, or is there a way to figure that out? Is that known?
1: I mean, my very, very fundamental understanding of how you get these, like, super outlandish things is that evolution is just super, super messy. Every time something reproduces, there's a chance that there's just going to be some kind of genetic abnormality. And if that genetic abnormality in any way allows the thing to reproduce S- slightly more than the thing that has that doesn't have the genetic abnormality. that is the new direction for evolution. So it's just constantly just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And if it sticks, it continues and you keep doing it again and again. There's no master plan, sorry for all of you intelligent designers out there, <clears throat> but yeah, it's you just it's it's just a a, a giant chance. Random variables are introduced. If that variable doesn't interfere or even gives some kind of uh, edge in the, that organism's ability to reproduce, it passes along those traits, and it just it just keeps building. So that's why you end up with, you know, it's it's kind of hard to figure out how do you you know like you look at the Venus flytrap, how did we go from a blade of grass to the you know the, a, a plant? With an uh, an effective mouth that eats flies, right? That's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. But there were many, many, many steps along the way in a giant branching tree of dead ends uh, of all these things that weren't quite the Venus flytrap that we know today, that just weren't as effective at feeding the plant and allowing it to reproduce.
0: Mm.
1: Does that answer your question?
0: Sure. If anyone else is a scientist out there, let us know. Okay, so I want
1: that doesn't you didn't understand that at all.
0: I understood what you're saying. I just don't know that. Um, I think it was very vague, and it, I said, I could have put that together in my brain. Oh, you know, <laughs> like, that, I told you. It's not with really my, what I was
1: asking. What's what, okay? What are you asking?
0: No, I'm just like curious, like if we can trace back, to, like what the theories are about, you know? Because, like, okay, a a, a fly lands on a flower. How does that turn into like the flower figuring out how to create digestive juices and how to have like s- spring-loaded traps essentially that have like twenty-second timers? You know, it's just it's very very complex, and I'm sure. just curious like how we bridge that gap. But I-, I also accept that you and I don't know the answer to it, so we'll wait for the scientists to write in.
1: Okay, so let's look at Darwin's finch experiment. When Darwin was in the Galapagos, there's all these different types of finches, right? And they have a vast variety of different types of beaks. And it's like, what, what's the point? Why are there this giant biodiversity of different types of beaks and finches? And he was able to trace the very specific beak types to like different like fruits or nuts or something that that beak was a very specific tool to open or get into or something. And what that allowed that, that one very specific type of finch to do uh, was be able to feed itself without having to directly compete with the slightly different type of finch that eats this other thing because its beak is slightly different shaped. Does that help?
0: No, it is helpful. It is helpful. But, you know, I'm just, I I, I wish we had more inform. Like, I, I, I understand the theories of it. I understand the, like, concept. And I... I'm just like, you know, it's just interesting.
1: Anyway. So I I think this episode would have benefited from what we used to do of bringing people that actually know what they're talking about. Lesson learned.
0: (laughs) So let's shift to poisonous plants, starting with oleander. So oleander has ties to ancient Rome via the writings of Pliny the Elder, who has shown his face on this podcast before.
1: Good old Pliny.
0: <laughs> oleander, and that's just to say he he's the one who kind of writes about it a bit. So oleander, also known as nerium, is a beautiful yet very poisonous flowering plant. And you might have seen the 2002 film White Oleander, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Renee Zellweger, about the daughter of a woman who poisons her unfaithful partner And oleander is like one of those things where if you, which I did, Google, you know, like murder by plants or people, whatever. Oleander is like the plant, one of the plants of choice. Like it comes up, especially in modern time, quite more frequently than maybe you would think.
1: I have not seen that movie. I'm not familiar with oleander.
0: Another very famous poisonous plant is belladonna or deadly nightshade. In Italian, belladonna literally means beautiful woman, kind of like calling back to that Robin Williams quote. <sniffs> and it's fitting because the plant itself was actually used as makeup in the Middle Ages, mostly as blush.
1: That sounds dangerous.
0: Yes. And that that's kind of a theme with some of these poisonous plants. My research on belladonna led me down some very fascinating rabbit holes, Alan. Oh? One of which, in particular, we're going to spend a few minutes on because I... I was really very much in this rabbit hole. Okay. It's the story of how a woman in the Middle Ages helped over 600 women murder their husbands with Belladonna. And I'm going to kind of caveat this. There's like, I cited the Medium article about this, and then there's like some conflicting information on Wikipedia and some other sources. So kind of piecing together the facts as best I could. But I do think because it's so old in history that... Some of it could be conflated or exaggerated, you know, but we're going to go with it and present it through that lens that it's hard to kind of nail down a lot of the facts for this one. So the Medium article, where a lot of this information originated for me, was written by Genevieve Carlton.
1: It's a Medium article?
0: Medium.com. It's kind of like almost like you can, uh, anyone can post articles to Medium.
1: Oh, it has nothing to do with Mediums in like the spiritual sense. No, nothing at all. Okay.
0: Uh, and again, there's also the Wikipedia page. So I pieced together what I could here, but those are the sources if anyone wants to dive in.
1: I mean, this is good. I'm glad we're getting back to our roots of full confidence, no credibility.
0: So what we do know is that there was a woman named Gaulia Tofana. That's my best guess uh, pronunciation. S- say
1: that one more time, please.
0: Gaulia Tofana.
1: Gaulia.
0: She was born in Palermo, Italy, Her birth year is unknown, but the meat of our story takes place in the mid 1600s. So that's that's the time frame here. At that time, many marriages were either arranged marriages. Divorce wasn't an option. There was a ton of mistreatment of women, ton of abuse. So there's a lot of reason why women would hypothetically want to murder their husbands, because that was the only way like you couldn't just go get divorced. Right. So this was the only way that you could break it up.
1: Man, things were so terrible back then.
0: (laughs) So Gulia Tofana is believed to have invented a product called Aqua Tofana that was laced with belladonna, lead, and arsenic. As the popularity of this product grew, Tofana sort of expanded her operation, right? And her daughter and other women would help to make the product until she kind of had this this little poison ring going on. And the the story goes that one woman even took over after Tofana's execution. So it kind of kept going even after she was caught and executed, which we're going to talk about now. So Tofana's product was highly successful and untraceable. It wasn't until one woman who had bought the product, you know, uh, with the intention of poisoning her husband, put it in her husband's soup. And just as he was about to take a bite, she got cold feet and she sort of like ripped the bowl away and was like, don't do that.
1: And he's like, fuck you. Give me that soup. That was like a month's wages.
0: (laughs) No, he was like, what the fuck did you put in my soup? He might have said the other thing too. He sat there
1: all the time. like, what the fuck? You boiled my soup.
0: And so, yeah, so he, that's how it was exposed. Cause then the woman came clean and, you know, kind of like ratted everybody
1: out. Ah, uh, what a narc.
0: Yeah. The legend again goes that Tofana was executed along with her daughter and one of the accomplices. However,
1: was she executed for being a witch?
0: For being a, a murderer. Some of the elements of the story are not confirmed, right? So I just want to quote from Wikipedia, quote, Tofana's involvement in all this is not confirmed. The only recorded evidence of poisoning activities being the executions of Teofani di Adamo in 1633 and Gerolama Spara in 1659, claimed to be the daughter of Guglia Tofana. Historians point to Guglia Tofana dying in her sleep in 1651, with no one aware of her poisoning activities. Confusion of her activities with other poisoners active in the area have led to tales that she died in 1659 or 1709 or 1730, with further elaboration, that she took sanctuary in a convent and continued to manufacture and distribute poison for many years until she was found out, executed, and her body thrown over the wall of a church that had provided her with the sanctuary, end quote. Typical. So those are just a few different kind of theories about how she actually died. So I think that's like worth pausing on, right? Like, regardless of some of the murkiness, hypothetically, an Italian woman in the 1600s helped their wives kill 600 husbands.
1: I mean, yeah, that's pretty impressive. See, it seems like uh, a little little overkill, though. This is the Middle Ages we're talking about. I'm just like, here, scratch your husband with this rusty nail. He'll die. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but then they would, you know, you want to be discreet about it.
1: Yeah, while he's sleeping. (laughs) Fucked.
0: Another famous use of nightshade was the real life inspiration behind Shakespeare's Macbeth. So Scotland's Macbeth, who was a lieutenant of King Duncan I, he at one point actually gave out, he's kind of famous for giving out bottles filled with nightshade to invading troops of England sent by King Harold Harefoot. And the troops had to retreat before they even had the chance to fight because of how sick these bottles made them. And the only thing I want to note here about that is that nightshade can be brewed and fermented in a way that makes a sweet drink, similar to like a wine or a mead. So it's very easy to fool the drinker. Like They were like, oh, great, this like, you know, mead, but really it was poison nightshade.
1: That's how they get you.
0: That's how they get you.
1: But we just talked about King Duncan, which reminds me of Dunstan, the explorer from earlier. Oh, wow. Cool um, memory good recall well i only remember that because i forgot to bring this up earlier i can't hear the name dunstan without picturing the monkey what monkey from dunstan checks in i've never oh, oh, I've com- no, I really? don't know what that is yeah you you've not seen dunstan checks in this image doesn't ring oh a bell.
0: yeah that rings a bell yeah. i remember i haven't seen that movie but that looks familiar yeah
1: the chimpanzee i guess the, I i don't yeah, the, the chimpanzee was all that I was picturing when you're talking about an explorer going through the Was jungle. he,
0: the chimpanzee was named Dunstan or the kid?
1: Uh, I, believe it was, I believe it was the chimpanzee. It's been a very long time since I've seen this.
0: Interesting. Maybe a, a movie club movie.
1: Yeah, perfect.
0: <laughs> Another famous poisonous plant is hemlock, which famously, as you called out at the beginning, killed Socrates, the Greek philosopher. The account comes from Plato himself, who claims that Socrates was found guilty of heresy and forced himself to drink poison hemlock. So by his own hand, had to drink poison hemlock.
1: Yeah, I forget what what the logistics behind that were. Something where if he killed himself, uh, I don't know if that was just an integrity thing or a legal thing, but yeah, him doing it of his own accord was such a, a, a bullet point. Yeah.
0: The other interesting tidbit about toxic plants is that many cases throughout history, documented as far back as Cleopatra, women have used toxic plants to dilate their pupils and, and simulate, quote, attraction to men and beauty. So a lot of these poisonous plants that were used for makeup or whatever were also, like, made into drops, or I don't know how the logistics of it worked, but literally they would put it in their eyes so that their pupils will dilate, and men would be like, oh, they're into me. Because, like, obviously... It wasn't happening organically. Okay, this was one of my favorite findings in this whole episode. Okay. The queen of mystery herself. I'm not sure if that's what they call her, but the queen of... Elvira? No, Agatha Christie. Author Agatha Christie, who's written many, many, many famous mystery thriller books, was a big gardener in her spare time. So much so that she had a local reputation for winning the Brixham Flower Show. Wow. Which is apparently a big deal. Later in life, Christie lived on a property called Greenway, which was actually an established estate that had existed for over five centuries. Christie and her husband bought the property in 1938 and inherited the 100-years-old garden. Greenway was in Devon, a location in the UK where the climate fosters the growth of tropical plants. Quoting from the Garden Collage article by Joyce Newman, quote, Christie's husband, Malawan, a noted archaeologist, kept detailed records of any trees, shrubs, and flowers that they purchased. He was especially fond of a magnolia tree still standing today near the house. But according to the Royal Horticulture Society, among the best exotic specimens in the garden are rare mimosas, myrtles, mahonia, and puyas.
1: You just said a bunch of words I've never heard before in my life.
0: Just different kind of rare plants. Plus, there is an exceptional collection of more than 200 different camellia cultivars, more than 50 different eucalyptus specimens, and amazing gigantic rhododendrons, originally brought from China in the 19th century by a famous plant hunter, George Forrest.
1: I have a question. Yes. What's a puya?
0: So there's apparently like hundreds of different types, but it, it's kind of like this plant that has... This almost like cone-like shape to it and like spindles that come out of it.
1: That's kind of cool.
0: It's very cool. And there's like there's a lot of them, it looks like in desert-like landscapes here, but quite striking and bizarre looking, which I think is the whole point of their garden, that it's filled with just exotic, different plants that they wanted to kind of surround themselves with. Hmm. In some cases, it almost looks like a cactus.
1: Well, now you just got me thinking about why things look so weird. You know, like think about like plants in the desert compared to just like in a forest. Yeah. It's just everything is a product of its environment.
0: Evolution 101.
1: Evolution 101.
0: So, Alan, did you know Christy has two works of fiction that actually take place in Greenway, this estate?
1: I can't say that I did.
0: The works are Five Little Pigs from 1943 and Dead Man's Folly from 1956. But the really interesting thing is that Christy uses poisonous plants as murder weapons in over 10 of her novels. Spoilers. It is kind of a spoiler, to be honest. I'll admit that because a lot of her work is like, oh, it's like a whodunit. And it's like this mystery.
1: The plants did it.
0: But it's this trope she uses over and over again. The Garden Collage article says that Christy is so successful at using this mechanic in her work mostly because of her personal knowledge of plants, right? She can write about them in a very authoritative way or a realistic way because she has, you know, it's her hobby. Mm-hmm. And again, there's you could find the list of novels very easily online that, you know, if you're interested in reading them, but I don't want to spoil them, so I'm not going to specifically name them here.
1: That's considerate.
0: So that's what I have for you for poisonous plants.
1: Hmm. Well, I don't really, this is not a poisonous plant at all. Uh, I was, I've just been like... Trying to figure out where to put this section in. Okay. But it's a hundred percent death by plants. Very based in real life. Okay. So it can't go in the pop culture section.
0: Well, what tell us, spit it out.
1: It is bamboo torture. Yikes.
0: Is this a trigger warning for people? Is it gonna be graphic?
1: I don't think so. I mean, maybe. It, it just seems so crazy and outlandish that it I mean didn't trigger me, so it can't trigger anybody. <laughs> okay. So a victim would be strapped down to like some kind of grate, something that's like a, a b- basically you're suspended over a bamboo shoot. Yep. Okay. And so like some types of bamboo grow can grow uh, up to four centimeters in just one hour. Holy shit. That's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. You see these enormous bamboo forests and yep. they const- constantly get harvest, but they just grow back so fast. So anyways, the victim would be positioned, uh, suspended over this bamboo shoot. And it just grows so fast and so pointy that eventually it will pierce the skin. And this is obviously a form of torture that, if not stopped, is fatal because it will continue to grow to the point where it will blossom out the other side of the victim.
0: Oh, my God. That's terrible.
1: Yeah, this was uh, reported, uh, again, via, via Wikipedia through unsubstantiated accounts as a type of uh, prisoner torture in like Asia after World War II or dur- during and after World War II. But yeah, de- mur- murder by plants—sort
0: of like a set it and forget it type of torture, you know?
1: Yeah, right. How convenient. Mm-hmm. None, none of these uh, swinging blades that have to get oiled. That's right. Just plant your seed, watch them, watch them grow. Probably have to water it though. Uh, so, fun fact: MythBusters tested this, and they were able to get it to pierce a full torso of ballistic gel in three days.
0: What's ballistic gel?
1: Oh my gosh! You clearly have not spent enough time. with this I don't
0: this want flesh to finish. open a whole rabbit hole. I just would like like a one sentence answer about what is ballistic gel.
1: Ballistic gel is this type of, uh, well, gelatin, I guess. Okay. That has the same consistency of human flesh, so it's used to test. Got it. You know, Weapon. well, we- weapons like how things interact with how it would interact with uh, a human body. Yeah. They just make a cast or a mold of ballistic gel. Got it. And then shoot it, slice it, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you don't need your, you know, cadavers. I think Mythbusters would have a very different rating if it used cadavers (laughs) instead of ballistic gel.
0: Yeah, totally. Wow. So this killer plant episode...
1: Has really grown out of proportion.
0: Truly. So we are actually going to split this up into part one and part two, unplanned. But who knew Alan knew so many plant facts? I didn't. So we're going to put a pin in it here and we'll come back next week with the the invigorating part two to this series killer plants part two
1: okay so go ahead and stick around until next week (laughs) i promise we won't leave you hanging
0: very good very good okay we'll see you next week Bye. bye thanks for listening if you'd like some bonus content consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club.
1: Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel.
0: You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more.
1: And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there.
0: Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.